It's October 26, 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science and technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. To kick off today's show, a very special opening guest. We have the President and General Manager of Hawaii Public Radio, Jose Fajardo, here to tell us about the big news on Hawaii Island. Then we will hear about a couple of upcoming events. Liana Akowili from Fern Elementary is here to tell, about, tell us about her project, Crowdfunding for Schools. Then Chalmer Lowe from Pi Hawaii will tell us about the upcoming Jupiter Day 2016. Of course, then after the break, we'll be joined by Damon Fairchild and Todd Robertson to talk about technology innovations for the tourism industry. So, of course, we always welcome your comments and questions as part of that conversation as well. You can give us a call or tweet after the break. But starting things off, let's begin with Jose. Welcome to the show. Oh, well, delightful. Delighted to be here, uh, Ryan and Bert. So now uh, there's a big announcement, and, and Jose, I know you're uh, very much aware of this, and this is something that's been kind of building up for quite a while. Yeah, you know, going all the way back to 1981 when Hawaii Public Radio started as one little transmitter, barely covering the island of Oahu, there was a dream to really provide public radio service to the entire state of Hawaii. And that started off with adding a couple transmitters and then adding a second stream of programming, HPR2, where what we're listening to right now. But there was this puka on the east side of the big island of mm-hmm. Hawaii that we just had difficulty filling for a long time. And uh, we we found a, a spot where we could broadcast both a, a new HPR1 and the, now the new HPR2. And I'm delighted that today at 101 today, this station, HPR2, and these programs that we offer on Hawaii Public Radio are now available to the Hilo side of the big island on 91.3. So we might have the very first listeners to HPR2. PR2 are listening to Bite Marks Cafe for the very first time. Well, well I know a special someone that, uh, oh, that yeah. is close to Ryan that is probably <laughs> listening and may be our first caller from yes. <laughs> you know, the, well, the Ryan, yeah, Ryan fought hard to make the call in. It's K-A-T-E for Kate, but no. It's K-A-T-E, you know, which is a very yeah. good uh, set of call letters, too. Yeah. Yeah. So we're very proud of that. And, um, you know, it's a lot of technology. You know, it's a, it was a difficult uh, transmitter to build because it's on top of a, of a mountain. Uh, you have to go through the uh, federal prison system to get mm-hmm, to it. Mm-hmm. Um, if it rains, you have you know you have to get up there with a four wheel truck anyways. And if it rains, we just you just can't go up there. So it took a long time. We had to we had to reconstruct the tower because there were some deficiencies with the tower. Uh, and so we had to get steel from the mainland, ship it here. It took a long time, but I'm 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 glad that we are able to get it done. We're broadcasting now on a strong HPR one on eighty nine point one and the brand new HPR two. At ninety one point three, so and the coverage area is is bigger, right? Yeah, right? so even right now we're broadcasting at reduced power because we have a tower crew still working on the tower, uh, but the signal is is for HPR one is much stronger because we're, mm-hmm. we're broadcasting on the same tower combining the frequencies of 89.1 and 91.3. Uh, so once the ca- the tower crew is complete with their work, we actually will increase our power, and that's going to really provide coverage from, you know, uh, almost the entire east coast of, of the Big Island. No, there are good. still some pukas there on the south shore of that island, um, and those are just difficult to get to because of the terrain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that will be our next project is to find a way to, to get there as well. It's a significant engineering feat, but in terms of a platform with 
statewide reach. I think it's a very big deal. And in fact, our engineer, David Chong, is traveling for the first time to East Hawaii, Hilo, my favorite town on earth as well. <laughs> so now we know that even while he's there, he can listen to our voices, which he loves to hear. That's right. Every, he won't be engineering our show next week, but he will be listening. Well, Absolutely. and there were so many great programs that they, you know, that that listening base of Hilo was not getting, you know, the, uh, the conversation, the takeaway, mm-hmm. uh, BBC The World, um, some of our local programs like Bite Mars Cafe, mm-hmm. The Body Works, um, all of our Saturday afternoon programs, The Moth Radio Hour, oh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, great. This American Life, all those programs that we just had every week, a week would not go by with a caller or, or someone writing in from Hilo saying, when is HPR2 coming to Hilo? Well, it's there now, and we're great. delighted. In so that now we're truly fantastic. statewide. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Jose, for joining Absolutely. us. Absolutely. My pleasure. And, and anytime. Anytime you got announcements, you can come on Just our show. Just sit in. <laughs> I, I have a key. Yes, <laughs> well, thank you very much. And that was uh, uh, Jose Fajardo, our president general manager here at Hawaii Public Radio. And it was a great time it's to have him. It's a big day. Yeah, to have him come on and actually grace us with his presence here on Bite Marks Delightful. Cafe. Absolutely. Delightful. Well, we want to kind of move on to our guest. And we have Liana um, Akawili, and she is from Fern Elementary. Fern Elementary is over there in Kalihi, and she was telling me about a crowdfunding program that she had. And I want her, well, I want to welcome you, Liana, to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks, Bert and Ryan, for having me. Now, tell me a little bit about why you wanted to start this crowdfunding effort, because I know there are, uh, you know, challenges with schools and teachers and trying to get money for supplies and what have you, but... This isn't the first time any teacher has done a crowdfunding effort. So, But what prompted you to want to go this route? Well, actually, um, my first crowdfunding project was actually three years ago. And it was because my grade level coordinator at the time decided to help me because all of my technology was actually outdated. Mm-hmm. And so the following year, I ended up having my first set of Chromebooks come in mm. and then Last year, I did a partnership with Mid-Pacific Institute where I was, well, that's my alma mater for high school. Mm -hmm. And so they partnered with me for a hydroponics partnership. So we got to make our own sets of hydroponics. And so this year is my virtual reality project where I want to bring 360 technology into the classroom and have kids um, view their work through Google Cardboard. Mm-hmm. And you're you're a teacher for third grade, right? Correct. Oh, great. So it sounds a little... Advanced? Yes, for them. But it's actually going to be awesome with the ThingLink uh-huh. program mm. because then the kids are going to be able to take those photographs and those videos and they get to put their tags on it so they could reflect on their work. Mm-hmm. And so that actually makes it more for the third graders because they're able to use that technology to help with like formative assessment. So in terms of me knowing what they learned on the field trip, it'll be easy for them because they could just put that tag wherever they found something interesting and say, hey, this is what I found and this is how it's going to relate to me and my learning. But um, you know, previously you did have some funding source, right? But that funding source sort of what went away? So as I was telling you from earlier, it was the Chevron Failure School Program. And so that was how my two other projects were founded because mm-hmm. they were able to fund projects that were 1000 to $2,000 and they decided not to fund Hawaii projects. And so not just mine, but everybody else's projects that are STEM related are mm. not guaranteed that funding when years passed that was guaranteed funding for them. And so it was a huge loss. And a mm-hmm. lot of my friends this year especially were saying how sad they were because that was their 
main source of bringing in extra technology or furniture into their classroom that was STEM related. Mm-hmm. Now it's really interesting to see more and more crowdfunding for anything, whether it's a whether it's a team trip for sporting for a sports uh, club at a school or for technology. Um, the company I work for recently did fundraising for Kapuna Hall Elementary in Kaneohe. We got them a bunch of Chromebooks from uh, Hawaii Information Service. Um, so it's becoming more and more widespread. I, I am glad to see teachers becoming more and more directly involved with them. You said that this wasn't your first. You did one like three years ago. I would imagine that the number of platforms and the understanding of the people who support and your te- your parents for pitching in, I mean, it's it's a whole different world now. Well, a little bit. Well, we're from a low-income school, and mm. so because the families don't really have the technology even more so, it's so important for them to have it at school because we're their main source of having access. the technology mm. access. So they're like my students, I did a survey and they all told me that they do have tech. Um, they have phones, they have iPads, they have tablets, they have computers, laptops. But then the parents don't let them access it because they think that it's not school related. Mm. Or even more so, they think, hey, um, we also don't have Wi-Fi. So they'll have the materials, but they don't have the Internet actual access. complete resource. And so they're not allowed to complete the work that set forth for them mm-hmm. on the computer. So for them to learn technology literacy, it's all really on the schools now. Mm-hmm. How are you reaching um, potential donors? I mean, certainly you have a community that you reach. You have other teachers. You have the parents of your students, but they might, as you mentioned, um, not necessarily have those resources. How are you finding your supporters? Well, luckily, I have a really strong support system of like families and friends and like people who watched out for me. Um, but... A lot of it has mainly been through Donors Choose and applying for grants and mm. scholarships through other community re- partnerships. So when you put your crowdfunding program together uh, and put it out on the uh, you know the net, did, did uh, you get a sense as to who was contributing? Were they primarily Hawaii people or did you see people from elsewhere contributing? This time was different, actually. So... But in the past, it's been a lot of like my high school teachers or people who've Uh known me since I was a kid or like family friends. But this time there was somebody from California. And that was a huge shocker to me because I've never had somebody outside before Uh besides the Chevron Fuller School Program. Wow, that's great. And then did you uh, help to I noticed that, you know, this is kind of it's kind of rare to get a press release from a third grade teacher and and you but you took it upon yourself to actually draft up a press release very and send enterprising it to us. Yeah, yeah yeah that's great so how else did you market this well actually i was convinced by my friend who, <laughs> who <laughs> you, wrote, you wrote the press release right <laughs> yes i did but i had him proofread it because it was my first one and he was <laughs> convincing me for quite some time actually that i should be writing a press release for my classroom and i was like what if it set me apart from everybody else? But I it's just... It's the initiative. Yeah. I mean, I could, there could be a wonderful day where we get a press release from every teacher in every school about right. their crowdfunding. But, but that we, day is not here. That day is not here. We heard we got yours. Yeah. So <laughs> congratulations. You. Yeah. Thank you. So that's great. So tell us a little bit more. Okay, so tell us where can we go to actually contribute if you wanted to contribute to this uh, fund, uh, crowdfunding. So my Donors Choose webpage is tinyurl.com slash f8 adventures and that will take you directly to my class um, donors choose page 
and it will have more information about my class, my school, and also what the project entails for our virtual reality project. Very good. And we will put the link on our show notes at bitemarkscafe.org. Wow, awesome. Thank you so much. Sure thing. Again, of course, thanks, Leanne, for joining us. Thank you, Bert and Ryan, for having me here. I really appreciate it. We Great. Had fun. And, of course, next up we have Chalmer Lowe, and he is here from Pai, Hawaii. And he's going to tell us about something called Jupiter Day, which I am dying to hear about. Welcome to the show, Chalmer. Thank you. Good to have Ryan, you Bert. So, so give us the quick, uh, you know, like the uh, elevator pitch. What is Jupiter, and why is there a Jupiter Day? Sweet. Jupiter is an application that helps you make notebooks. And you say, well, what is a notebook, right? A notebook is a combination of essentially text and code scripting, um, as well as potentially visualizations, and they could be interactive or static. And you say, well, what do you do with one of these things? Um, a lot of people use notebooks to produce reports or dashboards, shareable scripts they want to share with their coworkers or share with the world. And people can get very innovative with the types of things they do with these notebooks. Mm-hmm. For example, O'Reilly Publishing. Mm-hmm. They use notebooks to create books. You can go to O'Reilly and, for example, Mining the Social Web. It's like a 300-page book. It was all created with a Jupyter notebook. Okay, so when you talk about a notebook, this is not something that a coder would want to necessarily develop for just the purposes of, of coding. This is actually a notebook that could be shared amongst other collaborators? Absolutely. So, for example, when I open up my notebook... I open it up in a web browser, mm-hmm. and I can write maybe a short script or something like that, and maybe it produces a graph of how many listeners we've had on HPR, for example, over the past quarter mm-hmm. based on certain certain metrics you have. So I could go in, and I can open up my, my notebook, and I would see a little bit of code that generates this data. It's got nice graphs. It's got some, some pretty pictures, et cetera. And I can then either post that on the web through a place like GitHub or through the Notebook Viewer, which is a website that's out there. You could share this with your boss and say, hey, look how well Marks Cafe is doing this quarter versus last quarter, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, so it, go ahead. Um, this is through the organization called Pi Hawaii for Python. Mm-hmm. Um, I would imagine then that uh, this particular tool, Jupyter, has a lot of uh, things in common with Python as a language. So that's kind of an interesting thing. When uh, Jupyter notebooks were first created, they were written in the Python language. Mm-hmm. And here's a weird thing. The spelling of Jupyter is a little unusual. It's J-U- P-Y-T-E-R the pie. For, ah. for Python, right? Jupiter. Um, but the notebook itself will allow you to interface with just about any programming language. If you use R for data science, if you use Ruby, if you use Perl, Scala, Julia, and about 47 other languages, the notebook sits in front of your language. So you can type your script in Ruby or you could type it in Perl and you can produce your visualizations that you would do in your language. The notebook just is a place to showcase all of your work and so share it's, your it's work. So it's kind of an interpreter for the, lang- the the actual code that you're developing? Your programming language, like Python or, or Ruby, has an interpreter. This is a wrapper that sits in front of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it sends your commands and your scripts to your interpreter, mm-hmm. and your interpreter spits out results, and it will display the results for you. Um, and, and who would be the primary user of, of a Jupyter Notebook? Jupyter Notebooks are used widely by folks who do data analysis, folks who do data science. They're also used by students. You can put together a report for your teacher. Um, Teachers use them to produce content that they can share with their students. The student can see a script the teacher's written. He can tweak it on his own and play with it and experiment with it. Um, 
I said authors use it, so a lot of authors will create blogs with Jupyter Notebooks. They will create entire books with Jupyter Notebooks. Um, startups and, and folks who are doing business intelligence, you know, they want to have dashboards and see how their systems are, are working and see how their data is progressing over the course of time. Jupyter Notebooks are a great way to showcase all of the things you want to do and all the things that are happening in your startup. You need to send a press release out and you want to have the latest and greatest numbers. You have a script that generates those graphs and those pretty pictures for your press release. You can update it in seconds and you can produce the output in HTML, in PDF, in LaTeX, uh, slideshows, etc. So the notebooks the, are pretty yeah. pretty robust. What's the benefit of having a community full of uh, Jupyter users is that it's a, it becomes a common platform for all of those kinds of mm-hmm. uh, easy ways to disseminate information. Absolutely. So would you say that uh, if, if somebody was doing a, say, data analysis class, that uh, a Jupyter notebook would be a good tool that students could use to actually demonstrate what they've learned in terms of data analysis and, and maybe some coding and use the Jupyter Notebook as a way of, of conveying that, communicating that to the rest of the class. Absolutely. More and more teachers are using Jupyter Notebooks both to present materials and to accept materials mm-hmm. in from the students. The Jupyter Notebook has a module built into it that allows teachers to do grading of the, the content that their students are submitting back into the, into the classroom. So, so what, a, a what do you see achieving during Jupyter Day? So Jupyter Day, it's about four hours long. It'll go from noon until four o'clock. Um, and we're going to offer some tutorials, walk you from zero to hero, basically, mm-hmm. get you to help help install Jupyter Notebooks on your system, help it uh, help you learn how to use them, the basics, help you to learn some of the advanced techniques that one can apply with a Jupyter Notebook. We're going to have some demonstrations, some folks uh, who've used Jupyter Notebooks to do a variety of different things. So you'll see some kind of use cases, and you'll see, uh, like I said, hands-on. We'll walk around and mentor you and walk you through how to use a Jupyter Notebook. And again, what would be the base level of uh, coding expertise or comfort level that you would probably recommend for someone to come to Jupyter Day? Could I be a zero to hero in four hours? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm putting you on the spot. So say the right answer. So the right answer is... Ideally, we would like you to have a little bit of programming experience, right? <laughs> so stay, you're going to stay a zero. Stay, but, stay zero. But you don't have to be a genius, right? You don't have to be a genius programmer. Um, we're going to have sample notebooks, and we'll walk you through every step of the process, mm-hmm. right? We'll have mentors to help with kind of getting you spun up. And when I say zero to here, I'm not saying that we're going to teach you programming in a day. We're going to teach you how to use the notebook, pl- yeah, right? Cool. Um, and if you've, never, if you've never programmed before but you're interested in, in seeing how this works, come on out anyway. Bring your laptop and sit down with us, and we'll take you as far as we can in those four hours, right? Give you that bug, give you that itch. We're going to point you to resources so you can learn more. Okay, so tell Fantastic. us where, when is this taking place? It's taking place on the 29th of October, so next Saturday. This, this Saturday, yeah. This it's Saturday. at the Manoa Innovation Center. Um, it'll be from 12 to 4. We will have, uh, we'll have some snacks and some food for, some, for folks who come out. Uh, it is totally free. Uh, if you Google Jupiter Day Hawaii, uh, it'll take you to a blog post about it, and there's a link that, that allows you to Jupiter register. Day Hawaii. We'll put that up on our show notes. Absolutely. Yep. And what? again, Jupiter is J-U-P-Y-T-E-R. 
Very Love good. It. Thanks, Jalmer, for joining us. I uh, appreciate the time here. I'd love to have you back. Thank you. And of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Damon Fairchild and Todd Robertson. And we'll talk about tourism tech. What new technology or innovations are being used to attract more visitors to the islands? And what kind of visitors are we drawing in this new generation? Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts, questions, suggestions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll free from the neighbor islands, including East Hawaii at KHU at 877-941-3689. That's right. We want to hear from those listeners in Hilo. Absolutely. Anyway, and also we're checking out our Twitter feed and you can tweet us at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. KAHU 91.3 FM HPR2 is now being transmitted to the east side of Hawaii Island from our new tower atop Kulani Cone. This marks the completion of HPR's long-held dream of a statewide network, and we thank all those whose support made this possible. We look forward to listeners on the Hilo side discovering the quality and diversity of programs awaiting them on HPR2. And if you're in East Hawaii, you can now find HPR1 at its new location at 89.1 FM. Ioka is an internationally acclaimed poet, recording artist, TED Fellow, and activist. She opens our Atherton season on Friday, October 28th at 7.30 p.m. with an interactive talk laced with her songs and poems. Reservations at hprtickets.org or at 955-8821 during business hours. Ioka's Paper Heart is sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting and Sacred Hearts Academy. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Damon Fairchild and Todd Robertson. Damon is a senior account exec over at Expedia Media Solutions. Todd, meanwhile, returns to the show. He's the president and CEO of Hyperspective, which is a creative media firm that does interactive graphic design, animation, and film production. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments and questions. And that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And we want to welcome you all to Bite Marks Cafe. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Now, Damon, uh, we'll start with you because, you know, we, we just, uh, in fact, both of you were at the Hawaii um, Tourism Authority's Tourism Conference, which is their big conference uh, that they, they hold every year. And, and Expedia had a pretty nice-sized uh, booth uh, at the exhibit hall. And so I wanted to get your, your sort of uh, take on, on uh, the conference and, and maybe a little bit about the, the focus of, you know, sort of what's the message that we were trying to convey at the conference uh, this year. Damon? Yeah, I think the overall the conference was great. I mean, you had everything from food to culture to um, technology that we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, today and how Hawaii is the, the Hawaii tourism. Tourism Authority specifically is working hard to position itself as a world leader as it relates to technology. So I, I feel like the conference was in great part not only to expose uh, those visitors to the conference, all the things I already mentioned, but uh, to position the Hawaii Tourism Authority as a leader mm -hmm. uh, in the technology and travel space. No, you know, one thing that I was very surprised at because I saw you at the booth and I I thought, well, you know, Expedia is here. They got a pretty big presence. But what really surprised me is that you are, are actually based here in Hawaii. 
Yeah, I uh, moved here in 1999. I was just telling Todd out in the hallway that I followed my beautiful girlfriend, uh, and it turned out to be a good decision because 17 years later, we have three cute little girls, and uh, we live in Mililani, So, At, Oh, oh Mililani. Hi, neighbor. How are you doing? Oh. I'm neighbors. God's, God's land. <laughs> so so tell me, uh, you know, as far as Expedia, I mean, I am familiar with Expedia because of its online presence, but what is it that you would do? What does Expedia do on the ground here in Hawaii? So, wow, we have three actually different organizations that are here, a part of uh, what we call one team. Uh, we have our lodging team, who primarily focuses on relationships with uh, our hotel partners. Mm-hmm. We have a local experts uh, team, which focuses primarily on tours and activities. And a lot of people don't know that we actually have concierges in about 60 hotels across the state. Uh, and local expert employs about 200 employees here in Hawaii. Mm. Uh, And then we have our media team uh, that I'm a part of, and our media team primarily focuses on uh, promoting Hawaii as a destination and working closely with uh, hotel partners, uh, tour and activity partners who want to find a creative way uh, to promote their business within our our brand families. Mm -hmm. Now, you're specifically within the travel industry. Todd, you're a locally-based technology media company, but you participated in this conference as well. Yeah, I sure did. Uh, we had a lot of fun. We we had a booth there. We set up a little VR exhibit. And what we were talking about is uh, asking the question, how do we reach new markets in new ways and using technology? Mm-hmm. So using everything from augmented reality, virtual reality, of course, the low-hanging fruit, mobile apps, geolocation-based technologies and things like that. Uh, but what we're really interested is in is developing technologies here in Hawaii that are going to help us become a destination of choice and, or continue to become a destination or be a destination of choice in the future, especially in reaching those new markets and, and uh, engaging them in new ways. One of the things that I had heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, was that Hawaii has a pretty good uh, – recall in the sense that people who visit Hawaii come back frequently, but the challenge is always trying to find the new visitor, the one who's never had a Hawaii experience, doesn't know what to expect, and obviously the travelers of the future are more technologically savvy. Yeah, they sure are. They're, they're, they don't watch television. They don't, uh, you know, probably not listening to this radio show, unfortunately, what? as you Pod- know. What? Pod- oh, podcast. Right. No, no, I'm just <laughs> kidding. But they're on podcasts, so they're listening to the show. Oh, you got to be worried once they know you're on the show, Todd. Okay, they're going to kill me for that. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, they're they're harder to reach. They're, they're, they don't consume media in the ways that uh, older folks like me do so that we've got to find new ways to actually engage them and share the experience or what the experience could be for them in Hawaii. And so the question is, how do we bring the real unique values that Hawaii can provide to them before they even arrive? And while they're here, provide them with those kinds of deeper levels of experiences and using things like virtual reality. Of course, video has always been been a thing, but now using virtual reality, uh, different applications uh, through, you know, like what you're doing with facial recognition mm-hmm. uh, is really interesting. Um, so I think what it is is that we're really looking to experiment with what what are some new ways that we can reach this market, engage them, get them interested, and in, in actually become uh, visitors? Mm-hmm. And, Burke, no. you had organized a, a panel there also for, the, for, for tech in particular for this tourism. Well, conference. what was unique about the, uh, this conference was that there, you know, this conference has been going on for many years, and it primarily has, has been like a, a one-day conference. And this year we had the opportunity to bring in a tech segment 
and have a whole corner of the exhibit hall kind of dedicated to local tech companies. And so that was a, a, a new thing, and we're hoping that it's something that we can continue to actually build upon. And perhaps, you know, what we want to do maybe before the next uh, year's conference is, is maybe do a little bit more of this sort of reverse pitch from the tourism community and, and see if we can get more companies that are local, locally based involved, you know, with coming up with solutions for the, the tech community or the tech industry. So we're hoping to do that, but this was just sort of our first sort of baby steps toward that direction. Now, you know, uh, Damon, in terms of uh, Expedia, Todd was kind of alluding to this, and I, I kind of want to, you know, get your impressions. Expedia has always been sort of, in my mind, kind of an online uh, service. It's it's leveraged the Internet as a as a means for communicating to its its customers. And when you start to look at some of these new technologies, how do you start segmenting the population? How do you start looking at age groups and what might be more appealing to, let's say, the millennials versus the, the, the boomers? You know, that's a good question. Anytime we put together a, a, an advertising campaign, we really try to target those different segments in a different way. And let's say if when we're talking from a creative perspective, we may use different verbiage. We may use uh, sometimes even just a different color button uh, on a page or on an ad or, or, or whatever media that we're using to try to attract that audience uh, and try and sort of use a dynamic approach to... Like A-B testing, like yeah. more people like the blue button, so let's <laughs> stick with the blue button. Exactly. Expedia really has focused <clears throat> in all of its history and continues to focus on test and learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the big things that we'll continue to do. And with this campaign specifically that we're doing with Hawaii Tourism Authority, we'll continue to test and learn. Uh, it's been about a month since we launched the Discover um, your Aloha campaign, and we're already looking at results and learning from from those specific results. And uh, as it relates to you know some specific demographics, uh, this campaign specifically, and I think the Hawaii Tourism Authority is really focused on how we can reach millennials. Right? Mm-hmm. We we talked earlier about the high return rate; about seventy five percent of visitors who come to Hawaii actually come back. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so the challenge, again, is is how do we get that next generation to experience Hawaii and really understand what Hawaii is all about and that it's much more than just a beach destination, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's so much more to Hawaii um, that once they experience it, they can't help but come back. Mm-hmm. And we all know that. We live here, right? We experience it. But our, our challenges as marketers is to introduce um, – shoppers, uh, introduce travelers um, to Hawaii in a way that they have not ever been introduced to it before, and then ultimately to give them personalized recommendations that will be more in align with uh, what will really make the vacation the best for them mm-hmm. possible. We're talking to Damon Fairchild of Expedia, and we have Todd Robertson from High Perspective about technology and the travel industry. If you've got a question or a comment uh, or a suggestion, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands, including Hawaii Island and East Hawaii on KAHU 91.3. Now, I do want to talk about the facial recognition. I can I have my whole uh, minority report question for you, but uh, <laughs> let me go back to Todd. Uh, you at this conference, you talked about doing a virtual reality experience. And one of the things that the HTA promoted, and I did see it on the evening news and, and well covered, was an, a specific set of VR immersive visual experiences. Like you could come in on a, on a parasail off 
the coast and come into shore with this VR helmet on. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of those experiences? Uh, yeah, sure. That was something that HTA put together. Uh, I see, um, I see. Yeah, so we had a little bit of a different experience gotcha. that we were demoing uh, within the tech hub mm-hmm. at the at the conference. Uh, but basically, the idea was to capture experiences around the islands. That so HTA's goal was to try to present how we can immerse people in these experiences before they even come here. Um, so you might think to yourself, well, if we're able to do that, if we're able to kind of create this virtual reality immersive experience for people, uh, why even come, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I, I can... know that was a, there was a panel and that was one of the questions that came up at the panel. And so how would you respond to that? I mean, if somebody were, were to say, yeah, you know, this is great immersive experience. I've been there, done that. Had a virtual vacation. (laughs) Been there, done that, but there's nothing like the real thing. Uh Okay, so this is really just a taste of what the reality would be for you if you were to come here. So in my view, what we really want to try to do with virtual reality and those types of technologies is to create new types of experiences that they can't have otherwise. So there's a lot of things that happen or that are part of Hawaii that are hard to connect people with. For example, we have a deep, rich culture. We have people here like no other people in the world, right? We have a a very unique history. But when you're driving around the island and you're experiencing, you're hanging out at the beach, whatever it might be, you're not really connecting with those elements of Hawaii, those things, those aspects that make Hawaii really unique and special. Mm -hmm. So virtual reality, augmented reality technology, they can start to actually bring those experiences to folks while they're here, not just pre-arrival to promote Hawaii, but to enhance their experience actually while so, they're here. So do you envision the virtual reality experience being perhaps delivered at the hotel or some entertainment center? I mean, where is this going to be potentially taking place if it's here in Hawaii? Yeah, I think virtual reality, everybody thinks about the goggles and, you know, it's like, okay, how's that going to work in tourism, right? Uh, Well, that's a good question. And I I think that everybody's kind of asking that. And that's great because what what we're trying to do is to try to find ways to bring it to the location-based experiences, um, to provide that kind of enhanced and deeper level of experience and connection with virtual reality through the goggles but there are also other aspects of, of virtual reality. We can bring it outside of the goggle experience and mm. have a shared experience, as an example, if we put it into an environment. Uh, we can maybe provide uh, visitors with goggles that or you know, basically it's, it's available through your own mobile device. Right. Um, Actually, so, I mean, could you talk briefly about augmented reality? So instead of a fully immersive one where, right. I mean, people right now, they're used to using Yelp and you can hold it up and look through it and see restaurants and ratings as well as the city behind you or in front of you. Is that something that uh, you're talking about for these yeah, experiences? That's exactly right. So augmented reality is kind of a more accessible, in, in a lot of ways, a more accessible technology because it be, you put it in the hands of the of the user through their own devices. Everybody uses, well, not everybody's using the the Yelp augmented reality, but that's a great example because you can hold it up and see the restaurants that are right down the street. Now imagine if you're standing in front of Iolani Palace and you're getting a deeper experience and connection through the stories of that palace and why it's there through your own device uh, without taking you away from it. So you're not putting your head down and looking into your device and missing the experience. You're just adding to it. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, we're talking to uh, Todd Robertson from Hyperspective and Damon Fairchild from Expedia Media Solutions, and we're talking about tech and tourism and VR, and we're going to get to facial recognition. But we also want to encourage you to give us a call. If you have a question about tourism and tech, this is the place to uh, ask that question. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands, which includes East Hawaii on the Big Island. And, of course, we want to welcome Kathy from Maui to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hi. I recently saw my Poeina. Uh, it's a play about the four days of the 1893 overthrow of the Hawaiian government. Okay. And... I would recommend that that gets put on Hawaiian Airlines. You know, they have a lot of visitor information, and it's uh, a play with eight or ten characters who are real-life people, and they are talking from their own words about the overthrow of the government, and it's quite interesting. And uh, was this something that you saw in a theater, or where did you see it? Yeah, it's... uh, it's the first time it came to Maui, and uh, it's played in Honolulu or Iwani Palace. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the lady who puts it on or produces it said it's been going on for eight years. It's a very powerful uh, play of important Hawaiian history. Excellent. That's a that's a great uh, recommendation. Thank you for your call. Um, I mean, we've also had conversations on this show, for example, about doing more about the inbound traveler experience, the in-flight entertainment on on screens. It was a very, it's a very big issue. For example, visitor drownings, you know, because if they're not familiar with uh, the risks of these beautiful natural environments that they get to visit, they could, in fact, have a problem there. But it's always a balance between what you want to really put in front of somebody when when they're coming in. Uh, uh, did you have any? Any thoughts in terms of, I can see, for example, getting a VR recording of this play and allowing people to watch this play from anywhere and turn around and see everyone on that stage. But, uh, Damon, your thoughts? So, you know, just interestingly, as it would relate sort of to the the campaign that we're doing with HTA and and facial recognition uh, software, from our perspective, what we would like to do is expose users to a portion of that before they cut before they arrive on island right uh, and Todd mentioned it earlier just giving users or travelers a piece of the experience enough to entice them to want to experience more of it personally uh, could be valuable for for users and one of the things that we really tried to do with this specific campaign and the the, the title of it is discover your aloha is we really wanted to introduce travelers to uh, the concept of aloha and exactly what it means, and we wanted to present it in a way that was meaningful and accurate. And we spent quite a lot of time uh, working with the HTA on ensuring that uh, we promoted it and that we educated users uh, in a way that was meaningful and, like I said earlier, that was accurate. So uh, we could do some of those same types of things with programs like the one that was mentioned. Mm. Well, you know, so I I want you to talk a little bit more about the, you know, this facial recognition uh, application that you're, you're referring to. And maybe describe what would be a a user experience in terms of um, you know actually taking part in that. I don't know. Maybe we should maybe hold that and go. We'll go to our break, but we want to come back and we want to talk about how does this virtual. I mean, this sort of facial recognition application really work? And you know, some people are feeling a little creepy because maybe it's Big Brother watching you. But maybe I think you can. I can think you you, you can definitely dispel that. 
uh, once we get into it. So we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with both Damon Fairchild and Todd Robertson. We're talking about tourism tech. And of course, we'd love to hear from you too. Love getting calls, 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Companies here compete in a global economy, sometimes at a disadvantage. We are all about hiring the best um, you know, engineers, the best uh, product managers, the best folks out there. And I think that um, there's a shortage of talent like that in the United States. I'm Kai Rizdal, Immigration Part 2 on our series How the Deck is Stacked next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Karan Bajaj, author of The Yoga of Max's Discontent. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to live a creative life in a material world. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Damon Fairchild of Expedia Media Solutions and Todd Robertson of High Perspective about new ways of attracting visitors to Hawaii with technology. And, of course, if you have a comment or question, this is the number to call. It's 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, right before the break, we were talking about facial recognition. But before we get into that, we want to welcome Chansey from Eva Beach to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome, welcome to, to the, the show. show. Hi. Um, I, I, I know you kind of got on topic about uh, the facial recognition, but I kind of wanted to touch about the technology tourism thing and how drones are playing a bigger role in kind of, you know, drones, yes. media. Um, videos on the web or, like, pictures and stuff like that and how that kind of correlates to attracting, like, a younger generation of people, but also, like, showing a little bit more of these areas that wouldn't normally be accessible to people or necessarily safe for people. So and are you... now kind of creating a destination because of these crazy videos that they're making. With right, right. right. So are you, are you feeling that that is a good tool to attract uh, the visitor, uh, having, you know, sort of these aerial, aerial drone footage? Uh, oh, I think they're gorgeous, and I think they can be used a great way. But um, conversely, I was thinking a lot about the human impact of like our natural areas here in Hawaii mm-hmm. and how important they are to our tourism. And then with drones kind of showing access to places that normally wouldn't be accessible to hundreds of people, they're now being kind of flooded more as a destination because of their on the internet or YouTube or wherever. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. That's a great point. I mean, there's always going to be this balance. And, and, and you know, of course, Chancey, thanks for the call. Well, you know, maybe, um, Damon, I mean, you, you guys get exposed to this quite a bit. And I know there is always sort of that criticism and not so much maybe Expedia, but, you know, wherever there's sort of like, where do where do locals go? You the know, hidden waterfall. The hidden waterfalls or mm-hmm. the place that nobody else can access. Now, this is always going to draw that, um, you know, that sort of balance between 
showing the the cool places versus having hundreds of people An show up on at a place, place that yeah. perhaps can't handle that kind of traffic. Yeah, in fact, it's interesting that the the topic of drones came up for a couple of reasons. One, because we actually used quite a bit of drone footage in in uh, the content that was created mm-hmm, for our campaign. Mm-hmm. We worked with a, a local company here called Sky's the Limit, who did uh, an amazing job uh, creating that drone footage. But as we prepared for where we would use the drone footage or where we would film, we worked really closely with the HTA on determining which locations would be uh, the best not just from sort of encouraging visitors to come here and, and that would excite them or help them to connect emotionally, but ones that we would have the most positive impact um, on the tourism industry, but at the same time, the least negative impact right. environmentally. Mm-hmm. So it was a conversation that was continual throughout all of our planning and, and execution um, of the campaign. So we, yeah, we drone footage is something that we have included. It's definitely something you see around. A lot of times what you see on the internet was not necessarily authorized or, right, right. Mm-hmm. or uh, permitted like the, the work that, uh, that, that we did. Uh, but it's something that we definitely took into consideration and it was a big part of our conversations throughout the entire process. Yeah. I think Chauncey had a really good uh, point of view. I mean, certainly drone footage, or I would call it the, now the GoPro generation, mm-hmm. the Instagram selfie generation where you want to go to the most spectacular place, the most remote place, perhaps the most dangerous place to get that one shot to show off to all of your friends. And since the very beginning, in fact, it was the HTA that did a campaign back in 2009 called So Much More to Hawaii, and they invited bloggers to come and use those tools to tell the story of Hawaii, but one that was responsible, and we're kind of in the same place. Now, mm-hmm. everybody is a blogger in a sense. Everybody has that voice. Um, I, I, Not to put you on the spot, but how does Expedia handle when you know maybe people are recommending visiting the secret tidal pools on Kauai that you really shouldn't be sending hundreds of thousands of people to. I know that the uh, even the DLNR has worked with bloggers to have them redact information on how to reach some of these places. Have you had to face any of those kinds of issues? What we do is we, like I said before, we consult with the HTA and we only promote uh, the locations gotcha, that, gotcha. that seem to make the most sense and that are that are safe. Right, safety is a is a, a huge concern, uh, as well as the environmental impact that we mentioned. So, um, yeah. So, so you know, Todd. I mean, from a virtual reality standpoint, from a content creation standpoint, I mean, where do you where do you start to see what gets created versus perhaps what might not be a good, you know, a good subject for virtual reality. Is it is it really driven by, you know, who's paying for the for the content creation? <laughs> I think that it's uh probably a little bit driven by who's paying for the content creation, but in my opinion, um if you want to entice somebody to come have a Waikiki experience, you can capture a Waikiki virtual reality experience. However, that's just something that you can get on the ground, right? I mean, sure, right. why why try to create an experience that you can get access to just by being here? Mm-hmm. You know, so in my view, I think the real power of virtual reality it, it, as a technology is to create experiences that you can't have otherwise. Um, and like I said before, I think that the way that 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 I personally think that it's meaningful is to connect people with the culture, with the history with experiences that you can't have otherwise. And we were just talking about actually places maybe around Hawaii that you, you can't get access to. 
you know, what if you're standing on the rim of the, of, of the crater where, you know, lava is blasting out? Well, obviously you can't stand there and do that, but we could create a virtual reality experience where you can kind of experience what it might be like. Well, you know, there's, there. there's um, yeah. sort of the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor coming up uh, this year. And I think uh, the, the, the content that you showed at uh, the uh, conference was sort of indicative of the potential of what could happen, where you are kind of maybe recreating some of that experience of uh, what happened at Pearl Harbor. And that's something that is, I think, very unique in, in terms of uh, giving a person sort of a a an experience that you know happened 75 years ago but now they can actually go to the Pearl Harbor uh, memorial or go to you know the Missouri and and sort of experience what it might have been like right and i think some of the virtual reality content could help connect you know the the realities of the actual war to what it is today yeah, I think so. I mean, it, you you bring up the war as an example and how it started here, right here in Hawaii at Pearl Harbor. Um, I think that that's a a very deep and meaningful uh, connection that we need to maintain because mm-hmm. I think that we need to remember the the significance of that event and the significance of that war and and what it really meant to world history. And the further that we get away from it now, 75 years away, and especially with the younger generations coming up, they get more and more disconnected with that, with that history and what, it, what the significance of it really was. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that virtual reality technologies and of just pretty much technology in general and where it's going are great ways to connect people with, with the meaningfulness and the, and the rich, deep meaning of those experiences. Um, and, sure. and hopefully keep that alive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, Damon, uh, we've teased it quite enough. We've so tell us how quite a bit. the uh, <laughs> facial recognition aspect of the tourism or travel industry. Aren't you keeping a database of everyone steps, stepping off a plane in Honolulu? Right, right. And are, you know, are those cameras on me every time I'm in the hotel? I mean, what are you, what are you trying to get at when you take pictures of, of people's faces? How does that actually work? Absolutely not. We're not recording <laughs> okay. anything. And we're also not taking pictures of anyone as well. When a user arrives at the microsite, they have the opportunity or the option to opt in and allow for a webcam to introduce uh, the facial recognition software. And what it does is as they watch a video and they're exposed to Hawaii content, it measures their facial reaction. 76 different points on the face, of course, as you can imagine, the mouth and the eyes and the nose are sort of take up a lot of real estate on the face. So as someone smiles or they raise their eyebrows or even if they frown or if they don't have any reaction at all, all of that is being measured in an algorithm in the background then is making note of which content they respond the most positively to. And after the video's finished playing, then they're introduced to one of three different guides that sort of fit three different profiles. Uh, He'e is an octopus who represents love. Uh, Pua'a is a pig who represents uh, adventure. And Eva, uh, the great frigate bird, uh, represents wisdom and experience. And so based on how they've reacted to that video, then they'll be introduced to some personalized recommendations for their Hawaii trip. So let's say, for example, they associated more with Pua'a mm-hmm. and it was adventure. Then they may be incur- they may be exposed to more content um, about zip lining mm-hmm. or hiking or snorkeling or, or something along those lines that's more related to adventure, right? Right. So, so the example would be you're watching the video and, and maybe a scene of a hike is is now presented on that video and 
the facial recognition will sort of look at your response mm-hmm. and take some note and compare that perhaps to you know the hike uh, reaction to maybe the restaurant reaction or perhaps maybe the you know the um, beach reaction and all of those are compared and then maybe that's what gets compiled to make the recommendation exactly and as we sort of built the technology what we, <coughs> excuse me what we did was uh, analyze thousands of faces and facial expressions and by doing that we were able to sort of come up with uh, what a, an average smile size was, right? Or what an average eye size was, average position for the mm-hmm, eyebrows, mm-hmm, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And then as the user watches the video and they stray from those averages, mm-hmm. then the algorithm again learns which content they respond uh, the most positively to. And again, at the end, receive personalized recommendations based on that. So remind me again, what the station you're talking about, where does this yeah, experience micro, yeah, exist? Yeah, where does this microstation exist? So the, the microsite is um, discoveryouraloha.expedia.com. So that's discoveryouraloha.expedia.com. And you could, of course, go directly to the microsite, and users are... are arriving there right now from on-site advertising across all of our Expedia uh, brands, whether that be Expedia or Hotels.com, Orbitz, Travelocity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, the campaign is being promoted there. It's also being promoted on social media, um, search, a variety of different ways that uh, users can, can arrive there. So once they, once they get there, then they have the opportunity to experience the, the software and the content associated with it. Well, I kind of like that uh, integration because certainly cameras on people as they use a website have, has been a long-time strategy for people who design websites even. Like where's the, where are they looking? What are their eyes drawn to? What are they responding to? But using basically measuring a level of delight depending on what's presented, <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's very exciting. Um, Todd, you know, in terms of tech and travel and visitor industries, we've, we've touched a little bit on drones. Certainly, virtual reality, augmented reality. Are, are there any emerging technologies that you're excited about, particularly uh, either working with or want to work with? Oh boy, that's a loaded question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, what do you want to play with? <laughs> what do I want to play with? Uh, I want to play with drones mixed with virtual reality, mixed with augmented reality, mixed with geolocation-based. Say blah 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 blah. I mean, it's it's all of the above. I think it's the amalgamation of all these different technologies coming together. And really creating new opportunities to, to uh, like I said many times, create new experiences. Uh, you know, I think that the future of self-driving autonomous vehicles mixed with uh, augmented reality projections on the windows of, of vehicles like buses and cars um, could could really be exciting in the future. Imagine you're driving down the road and you're looking out the side window and you're getting information about all these really great, unique places uh, around Hawaii. Imagine looking out the window and looking at a, a view of Hawaii two, three hundred years ago. You know, um, it, it, I think there's just lots of different opportunities that, that are really exciting right now. I, I, if you haven't had the chance to experience virtual reality, find a way to do it. Uh, you can check us out, hyperspective.com. Give me a call or email me. You can come by our office. We'll definitely we'll give you a demo. Uh, the thing is, is that once you've experienced it and you've 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 stepped into this immersive world of uh, this immersive virtual world, um, you'll realize the power immediately. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's very powerful on your on your mind. You 
in some ways you believe that it's real when you're in there. You mm. can almost feel uh, the things that are happening around you. Mm-hmm. And Damon, I mean, where do you see some of this technology heading in the future for Expedia? Well, I think right now you see in a lot of cases uh, what we're looking for and what a lot of companies are looking for are those personalized recommendations, right? How do we connect with travelers in a way that the recommendations that we give them are unique uh, to their specific needs and their specific personality types and 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 what they really want to experience. And so uh, what I see is, is <laughs> uh, in addition to all of the amazing things that, that Todd just mentioned, I see uh, the travel industry and technology in general striving to create more personalized experiences uh, and recommendations for consumers. It's basically a change from the model of decades ago where everyone had the same presentation, everyone had the same experience. I can definitely see a time when going to Expedia or going to the, uh, you know, Visit Hawaii website, um, it's a different, completely different experience for everybody. Nobody sees the same thing when they want to research a trip to Hawaii. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And, you know, right now we target based on behaviors. Right. And and uh, in the we currently can. And in the future, I imagine us, you know, targeting much more on profiles. Right. Uh, as we we learn uh, about users and, and you've seen it and you've experienced it, you often have the opportunity to log into a website using your Facebook profile. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that just helps that specific sites to understand you as a user much better, much more quickly. Well, you know, we're hearing so much about um, art of, I mean uh, like artificial intelligence AI uh, being leveraged by companies like Google Facebook how does a company like Expedia kind of see where AI might be going and how would you might want to take advantage of that well uh, that's a really good question um, I, I think as a company because we sort of see ourselves as uh, in fact, internally and externally, we say we're a technology company that's passionate about travel. So if there's an opportunity to use technology to connect with uh, travelers or consumers, uh, we're going to use it and we're going to test it and we're going to find what's the best way to implement that specific technology in order to connect users to their dreams. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For AI, I can certainly see a virtual travel agent or a that's virtual right, guide right, leading right. you around. <laughs> Very good. So, Todd, I mean, Hyperspective, where, that's where people can go and find out more about what you're, uh, what you're up to? Hyperspective, hyperspective.com. Fantastic. Very good. And, yep. of course, Expedia, where can we find? Well, we'll put up the uh, Discover Your Aloha on, uh, on our show notes tonight. But what else uh, can you share with us in terms of where people can find out more? Uh, I think that's the best place to – that's the quickest that's route to place it to is dot com, uh, and you can experience the, the technology and maybe learn a little bit more about Hawaii than you thought you knew already. Very good. Sounds good. Damon Fairchild is with Expedia Media Solutions, and, of course, Todd Robertson is the president and CEO of Hyperspective. We want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we are going to explore the intersection of tech and culture with the Purple Prize. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we'll leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a, here's a band called Mind Sign and a song called Yaonwe. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.